Welcome to School Biz Chat with Kim Cranston, OASBO Executive Director. Each episode of this podcast is dedicated to discussing events and issues that affect the people who are in the business of supporting students. Now, let's take a few minutes to see what's going on in the school business world. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of School Biz Chat. I know I always talk about our guests and how excited I am to visit with them, but today we really do have a special person joining us, Dr. Bill Rabori, who was recently inducted into Moasbo's Hall of Fame at our recent spring conferences here today to chat a little bit about the school biz profession. Bill is a longtime educator, administrator, He continues to support folks even in his semi-retirement. I don't think he could actually qualify as completely retired because he has so much going on. And just because I like saying it, he wrote the book on school finance in the state of Missouri. So, Bill, thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. So when we got together at the spring conference, we had a conversation with some of our past presidents and Bill shared a perspective, like I said, for doing this for 45 plus years as he's been teaching and working with people going into our profession. And so I just thought I'd let him share how that's changed, what he's seeing with people who are coming into the profession, the differences in his students and how he has seen all of this evolve. So Bill, why don't you just give us a little perspective in terms of that and just a little history. Sure, in 1987, I went to St. Louis University and began to take over the school leadership program. The thing that I noticed at, at that time was at the master's level, obviously we had a lot of teachers who were interested in going into leadership. And so they were earning a master's degree so that they could get their initial principal certificate and become assistant principals and then principals. The doctoral students at the time almost exclusively were principals or assistant principals or chairs of certain departments who wanted to get the doctorate in order to work in the central office. Although very few of them admit it, they wanted to be superintendents. Most of them would say, oh, I want to be an assistant superintendent for personnel or curriculum. And of course, ultimately, many of them did become superintendents. The other thing that I that obviously occurred in 1987 is that when I showed up for class, 90 percent of the people in class were men. And this was both at the master's level and the doctoral level. Now, if you move forward about 30 years, the things that have changed the most for me is uh, first of all, going back to my last comment, 80 to 90% of the class are women. So that's one change. Secondly, in the master's degree, we're still getting people who are teaching and are interested in moving into administration. But at the doctoral level, we are also getting a large number of teachers who have their master's and they're working on their doctorate and their aspirations are the same. They wanna be a principal or an assistant principal a coordinator, a director, an assistant superintendent. None of them admit they want to be superintendents, although they some will end up doing that. Over the 30 years, I think that has been our, my greatest change. The other is, you know, education changes and expectations change. You know, when I started teaching, it was very similar to when I was in school. 
you know, you had a midterm exam and a final exam. And most of the time, the classes were lectures. You know, now the classes are much more discussion, much more review, less emphasis on exams, and more on culminating activities that relate to the work that people will do as administrators, whether it be at the building level or the district level. But I think those are the probably the main changes that I've observed. So it's interesting. I'm going to go to the male-female shift because overall, women are still not a large percentage of superintendents are in that role. We are seeing them more at a central office level in terms of assistant soups, executive directors, chief, whatever officer the title is. And I even think nationwide, while there's still some progress women still lag behind in terms of men when it comes to being a superintendent. So that's one of the things that I think is interesting is the shift there. But then also your comment around people saying they want these other positions, but no one's really saying they want to be a superintendent. As you know, we are looking for superintendents. We're That's another area where people are leaving the field. So that's an issue. But then even in these other central office administrative areas, We're having trouble finding people to go into those positions. So I like hearing that that's what people say they're aspiring to be. But as you know, it's a tough time right now in public ed, especially for those administrative positions. So how is this culture and climate, particularly with politics, is that influencing the folks you're talking to? Are they reluctant to go ahead and step into these positions? What are you hearing from them? Well, let me go back to when I was a superintendent. When I first became a superintendent and I looked around St. Louis County, I could name you seven or eight superintendents who had been in the job for anywhere from 15 to 25 to 30 years. With the exception of maybe one in St. Louis County, the Parkway superintendent, I don't think any other superintendent in St. Louis County is has been a superintendent more than 10 years. I may be wrong, but that's probably pretty close. And of course, Bernie DeBray at Fort Zumwalt has been a superintendent, I think for about 40 years, but he's an outlier. He's not the norm. I think also that, you know, mentioning the fact that there are fewer women in the superintendency than men on a statewide basis, I think a lot of people look at the superintendency and I think they've kind of come to the conclusion that I want that to be my last job before I retire because I'm probably not going to last that long. You know, three to five years seems to be what most superintendents last. I know when I was an assistant superintendent, I used to think to myself about the superintendent. He was a really nice guy and I, I used to think, I wonder what he does all day. Because he never seems to be, really has no direct responsibility for many things. And then I became a superintendent and I said, oh my goodness, now I know what he does, what he did. He spends his time with the care and feeding of board members. And that I don't think has changed. As a matter of fact, I think it's gotten, maybe gotten worse. And of course, in your field with community relations, social media has made a tremendous difference in the stress on superintendents. As I talk to them, it's kind of like, what's going to happen today? 
So that's interesting, your point about this being my last job, because you're right, they're not staying in the jobs for extended periods of time. Bernie was an outlier. So what advice do you have, Bill, for people going into these district level administrative roles, a CFO, an executive director, assistant soup, maybe looking to be a superintendent? What pieces of advice would you give to them as they're starting this journey? Well, I think, first of all, when you get into the central office, whether you are in the business, curriculum, personnel, community relations, and I'm sure I missed a few, you know, find a job that you really like. Find a job that, you know, as I always say, you don't wait for Friday and you don't dread Monday. If you do a good job, and most people do, there comes a time where you have to make that decision. There's an opening for a superintendent in a neighboring district. Your superintendent is talking about retirement. Is that the next position I want? Or do I just want to stay where I'm at and kind of do what I know, as opposed to jumping into something that I really don't know much about? Because you don't know much about the superintendency until you get into it. And for those people who are really interested, and I hope that there are there are more and more, I think you just have to wait for your opportunity. But I also think you shouldn't jump at the first opportunity if you don't think you're ready. Unfortunately, some people end up being interim superintendents because the superintendent leaves abruptly or they can't find the person they're looking for. And they turn to you and they say, How about being the interim for a year? And you say, okay, you know, I'll do that. And then during the year, you know, maybe your ideas change and you want to stay. Maybe they don't. But I think you just have to wait for your opportunity and take advantage of it. But don't leap before you think through it. Boy, that's great advice because there are a lot of openings. And, you know, that's one of the things I hear from people that they really are taking their time to look around. And you mentioned boards. I know folks tell me if they're working with a good board, they recognize what a valuable experience that is. And they're saying, you know, I want to stay here where that's good, as opposed to maybe going somewhere else where it's not so good. Talk to us a little bit about superintendents in the smaller districts who wear all the hats when it comes to school business operations. One of the things I tell small school district superintendents is you are a school business official. I recognize that in the handful of large districts that are fortunate enough to have a CFO or an executive director of finance or assistant soup, deputy soup, whatever the title is of finance business operations, they are school business officials. But in those small districts, that is the superintendent. The superintendent does everything. And I understand there's it's a matter of scale, but they're still doing the same work that the CFOs are in the large districts. So anything you would say to them, because like I said, they're doing it all. You know, my first superintendency, it was me, an assistant and a bookkeeper. And the bookkeeper was a very nice woman who graduated from the high school where I was superintendent, never took an accounting course in her life and uh, walked in. And over the years, we had what was called a bookkeeping machine, which I have no idea what that was at the time. But you know what? It was the best experience I ever had. I learned more being in a small district and being the person who had to do everything. And it was at that time that I really developed my interest in school business because I was forced to learn. 
And as I went to larger districts, that experience was invaluable because one of the things that I I often think about, and I even say in my classes sometimes, if you're going to be a superintendent, even though you may have a wonderful CFO and you may have a large business office, you're the superintendent and you should know about school finance because you're going to be in the in the position where that is just as crucial and in some cases more crucial to your success than curriculum or personnel. So believe me, I think every superintendent ought to start off in a small district and have to do everything. When I was at Valley Park, we had 800 students. I had uh, 40 employees or 50. Today, by the way, they still have about 800 students. Well, I love that. And I think you're absolutely right. When you have to do it all, boy, you learn, don't you? You learn quickly and you know how everything fits together. And then you can take that experience if you move into a larger district. But it really helps your understanding of how all of the pieces fit together. And there are a lot of pieces that have to fit together. And you mentioned working with bookkeepers. And I'm going to tell you, I just want folks to know that you continue to work with people in those positions. You you are a valued um, teacher in our school business specialist certification program and helping those bookkeepers have some training and background has been life changing for many of them because they never had any of that before. And that relationship between the superintendent and the bookkeeper, man, that's critical. And working together on all of the business operations functions, it's a tough job. It really is. But as you said, man, you learn a lot when you do that. You sure do. Uh, You know, I went from a school district of 800 to a school district of 8,000. And you know what I found, obviously, I had a lot of assistant superintendents, but you know, it's really the same job. I had less direct contact, but at the other, on the other end, we were growing rapidly and school business and school finance was very, very critical in my day-to-day understanding of the district. Absolutely. So one of the things that I've noticed after the pandemic was before the pandemic, I think there was a lot of just assuming all of the operational functions would happen. And with the pandemic, there really was a renewed emphasis on technology and infrastructure. We had to talk about food service. We had to figure out how kids were going to get their meals. The whole pieces around facilities, grounds, maintenance, making sure we were doing things that were safe and healthy for our kids. And there's a lot of responsibility in school business operations that I do think was highlighted as a result of the pandemic and brought that to the forefront, which, again, I think is a good thing. But I also think it's one of those functions that's often underestimated what it takes to make all of that work, no matter what size school district you're in. Just pick transportation as just one of those functions. There are a lot of moving parts there. Yes, yes, there are. Yes, there are. You know, the public schools is the greatest invention in the United States. We pick your kids up in the morning, we take them to school, we educate them, we feed them, we provide extra school activities, and then we drive them home. And one of the things that happened during the pandemic is that for the first time for many parents, they 
realized the significant part of the public schools in a child's life. And, and you know, I, I applaud the school districts in the metro area, and I'm sure this happened in Kansas City and throughout the state. They had a large number of children who were on free and reduced lunch, and they found a way to get food to those children during the pandemic when schools were closed. So it's not just a group effort. It's kind of something that has become very personal, you know, that you have those feelings for those children and families. Absolutely. And that's what it's always, always, always about. Kids are at the heart of everything we do. And I know your heart for children, and we appreciate what you've done to support them throughout your career. So I just want to thank Bill. I want to thank everyone for tuning in to this edition of School Biz Chat. If you enjoyed this new episode, be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and share this episode with others who may be interested in this topic. Until our next time, Take care. We'll be chatting. This has been School Biz Chat with Kim Cranston. New episodes are released on the second and fourth Fridays of each month. If you have topics you'd like to be covered in the future, send Kim an email at kcranston at moasbo.org.